Increment 151, Lord willing, and if the mask don't rise, we will be completing this message as the last one we've done during our diaspora, our dispersion, before we get back together face-to-face, Lord willing, once again, on August 15th. Today, God, the essential good, the Greek word for that is agathos, agathos, God, the essential good, A. G-A-T-H-O-S, agathos. In the interest of the principle that minute exegesis yields significant insight, that's a principle I go by and study, we'll take a closer look at Hebrews 6.9, that particular verse. The verse begins with the perfect passive indicative form of, of the verb patho or pytho, P-E-I-T-H long O. P-E-I-T-H-O. Pytho. And that's, now the perfect tense indicates a completed action that has taken place at a point or during an interval of time in the past with present ongoing results means to be convinced or persuaded. The passive voice denotes that the action was produced by another agent than the speaker or another agency on the writer. It is a divine passive because the agent who convinced the writer is divine. The passive voice is the voice of grace in this instance because being persuaded of things that belong to salvation is by the grace of God and by the grace of our Lord Jesus and of the spirit of grace. The indicative mood is a mood of reality and certainty, also found in this verb. Reality and certainty. It is the mood of truth. The passive voice of grace is compatible with the mood of truth in this declaration. The verb patho or pytho means to persuade or to convince. The first person plural here may well be a literary or editorial plural, which is another way of saying we when what is meant by I. Or like the Elizabethan or the Victorian, we are not amused. Or it is possibly an associative plural, and indicates that the writer and his companions in the ministry are so persuaded. And so, in any case, the writer has been thoroughly persuaded or convinced of something, and he stands in perfect assurance concerning his readers and his hearers. It is evidently God who has persuaded him. There is a similarity between this and Paul's declaration that he was, quote, persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself. The persuader was the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, as parakletos, is also a persuader. But Romans 14, 14 says Paul was persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself that nothing is unclean in itself. The writer of Hebrews and his associates have been persuaded probably by the spirit of Jesus, as he's called in 
Acts 16.7 and Philippians 1.19, of something or some things regarding salvation. The conjunction de follows, that's simply de, de, and that's an adversative particle that never appears first in a clause in all of the Greek language of the New Testament, though in English it would precede we are persuaded, and it would read, therefore, so far, but we are persuaded, meaning contrary to the rhetorical scenario described in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, but we are persuaded. In other words, this isn't about you. All scripture is for you as a gift to you, but not all scripture is about you as we've learned. And I think Lewis Berry Chafer made that saying famous. Next is the genitive preposition peri, or peri, P-E-R-I, peri, which means concerning or about. And then the personal second person pronoun humon, which is H-U-M long O-N, H-U-M-O-N, humon, meaning you, or as they say down south, you all or y'all, and as the British people say, you lot. To put the verse so far in proper English order, then it would read like this, but concerning you, we are persuaded. As we've seen, the sobriquet that he uses for his readers, agapetoi, is used then, A-G-A-P-E-T-O-I. Oh, wait a minute, that's an A to E, E-T-O-I, agapetoi. But as for, we are cons- concerning you, we are persuaded, beloved. That's a term of endearment used elsewhere in the Christi- of Christians, in the New Testament, used by Paul, James, Peter, and John, all of whom were probably influencers on the PT who wrote Hebrews. Again, the proper word in English, as it goes in the proper word order of Hebrews 6, 9 so far, but concerning you, beloved, we are persuaded. I probably don't have time in my life to do every verse like this as I'm doing Hebrews 6, 9 before you, even though I do that essentially in my study. But I want to do this to illustrate the principle that minute exegesis yields significant insight. Following that, then, we have the plural article ta, T-A, ta, and that precedes the adjective, and here's where we're going to get down to business with essential goodness. K-R-E-I-S-S-O-N-A. Chrysona. Or if you think the E-I is pronounced the A-Y sound, Chrysona. Or Chrysona. Which, strangely enough, and this is confusing if you're reading the Greek and you're a novice like I am, and always will be probably with the Greek until we get to the heavenlies. Chrysona is actually, and again, this is a little bit confusing, but it's strangely enough the comparative use of the adjective agathos. A-G-A-T-H-O-S. Agathos or agathos. Actually, Agathos. I put the accent on the wrong syllable here, but agathos, meaning good 
or beneficial. In, and it, actually, agathos means essentially good, ultimately. It is the adjective used when Jesus said to the wealthy young landholder, there is only one who is good, agathos, namely God. Matthew 19.17, Mark 10.18, Luke 18.19. All of those include that word agathos in Jesus' description of one, meaning God, with a echo of the Shema, Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is only one who is good, that is, essential good as to his essence, namely God. It is this goodness of which a patristic theologian named Pseudo-Dionysius, now I want to say this guy's name because he is one of the, one of the most magnificent writers of the patristic theologians, or otherwise known as the church fathers, pseudo Dionysius. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about him, and this may be one of my often quoted authors. In fact, the quote I'm about to give you may be one of the quotes that I've quoted most in my recent career as a pastor-teacher because of its significance. So it is this goodness that the patristic theologian named Pseudo-Dionysius wrote, his name, incidentally, also is he also goes by the tag the Areopagite. And he was named after Dionysius the Areopagite. Areopagite means a dweller on Mars Hill, as we've seen. This man, along with a woman named Damaris and others with them, joined Paul and believed after Paul had spoken at the philosophical symposium on Mount Areopagus, otherwise known as Mars Hill in Athens. He was essentially laughed off the stage by most of the philosophers or sophists there, pseudo-philosophers in many cases, but there were a few that clung to him after that and went with him, and one was Dionysius the Areopagite. Now, hundreds of years later, someone took that as a nom de plume or a writer's pseudonym to write some books, including a book called The Divine Names. And so this man, Pseudo-Dionysius, is called that, not because he's pseudo or because he's a false person, but because he chose the pseudonym Dionysius the Areopagite, because he is evidently a Greek who was schooled in Platonic philosophy and possibly Aristotelian philosophy and other forms of Hellenistic understanding, but he also knew the scriptures. And so Pseudo-Dionysius is the type of guy that might have appealed to the pastor-teacher who wrote Hebrews and who quoted most frequently, in fact, almost exclusively, from the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, in, he, in Acts 17, 19-34, we have Paul's wonderful speech given at that symposium. And that's where Paul proclaimed God's great intention to, quote, judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M-A-N, he has appointed. God has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead, Paul said. That's where he hit the nerve of the philosophical symposium. Pseudo-Dionysius, therefore, picked this name of Dionysius because he was one of the few who believed Paul on Mars Hill, and went with him. 
So he picked this name well because he has no doubt stuck by the universality of Paul's gospel himself and of God's intention to judge the world with a single judgment of justification. That's what it means to judge the world in righteousness, to judge the world with a single judgment of justification through the man, that's Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Hundreds of years later then, this author who chose Dionysius' name as a nom de plume or pseudonym wrote in his book called The Divine Names. And this quote I call exquisite. It's one of the quotes I would put as exquisite, if not sublime. He said this, let us move on to the name good. He capitalizes that word good, G-O-O-D, which the sacred writers have preeminently set apart for the supra-divine God from all other names. That is, God above all the others called Elohim or gods. They call the divine subsistence itself goodness. He puts in quotes, goodness. And then this sublime statement, this essential good, capital G-O-O-D, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. Why am I talking about essential good? Because the word agathos is used in three places in Hebrews, but the comparative use of agathos that's spelled differently, like kresonas or kresona, is used 13 times in Hebrews 13 chapters. And so, riding throughout and essential to the Hebrews homily is the essential good that is God who breaks in with this homily in Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. So, this sentence, this is the sentence, and I hope you maybe even want to take it to heart. This essential good, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. That reveals the universally saving significance of God as mediated through Jesus, the man whom he raised from the dead. And that also hints at the universally redemptive impact of the cross of Christ, where Jesus offered himself both as the priest and the victim. Essential to theology is the acknowledgement that God is essential good. Let me say that again. Essential to theology is the acknowledgement that God is essential good. Fundamental to biblical soteriology, the study of salvation in the scriptures, is that the essential good that God is extends his goodness into all things. By the very fact of its existence, or I would say his existence, or the existence of the divine triune being we call God, by the very fact of the triune God's existence, he extends goodness into all things. For all things are destined to be redemptively pacified and recapitulated in Christ, the mediator of a new and unilateral covenant. It is a point that may not be considered by many commentaries that the essential goodness is so essentially intrinsic to the Hebrews' homily, as is shown by Agathon, in Hebrews 9.11 and 10.1, agatho, you'll see it in print in Hebrews 13.21, and agathos in its comparative form 13 times 
in the homily. Now this reminds me of Esther. We never see the name of God in Esther, though there are many acronyms throughout Esther that can be identified in which the Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton is identified. We never see the name of God in Esther, but his essential goodness, especially via providence, is revealed throughout the book of Esther. The essential good that God is is revealed throughout this homily called Hebrews, if not throughout the entire scriptures, but we're, te- we're talking specifically here of a Hebrews homily that has integrity, coherence, and completeness in itself. So we wouldn't say in English that something that is comparatively good is gooder. We would say that something is better or more beneficial or superior. And that's the idea here. So I'm still exegeting Hebrews 6, 9. But concerning you, beloved, we are persuaded of the better things. Ta kresona. The conjunction chi follows after that, K-A-I, and it can be translated and or even, chi, K-A-I. And the idea is, but concerning you, beloved, we are persuaded of the better things, even, then there's the verb ekomana, that's E-C-H-O-M-E-N-A. A, ekomena. You'll see the English transliteration in print. It's the present middle participle of echo. And it means to have. And then we have the noun. Hopefully it's familiar to you by now. S-O-T-E-R-I-A. Soteria. Soteria, the things about salvation. So we are persuaded, or let's back up slightly, but concerning you, beloved, you who are not like that hypothetical group I described in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, but you, concerning you, beloved, we are persuaded of the better things even than the verb that means have or having to do or having to do with, and then soteria. Or the idea here is the things regarding salvation itself. When we're talking about salvation itself, we can't talk about losing it, you see. Not eternal salvation. Though the experience of the preservation of the soul can be lost, and that's a dangerous thing. The idea of the things regarding salvation, or as some translations have it, and I think rightly, the things that accompany salvation is kai utos la lumen. After that. After that is kai utos la lumen, which means the final clause reads, even though we're speaking in this manner. Even though we're speaking in this manner. You'll see all the Greek words in the print. What manner? The manner that they were speaking in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, or that the author was speaking in 6, 4 to 8, was a rhetorical manner of speaking. And he describes a situation that does not describe those to whom he's writing. 
So even though we're speaking in this manner, utas lalumen, speaking in this manner. The manner in which the writer has been speaking is rhetorical. Rhetoric was an important art ever since Aristotle and before Aristotle with Plato and the dialogues, etc. And it, was, it didn't mean just what it means today, rhetoric meaning just empty chatter or some ideo- ideology expressed by rhetoric, something you say but don't mean. No, rhetoric is an art. It's an art of persuasion. And it's used to great effect here in Hebrews. So speaking in the mode of the persuasive art of rhetoric, he has proposed a hypothetical scenario in which a group of persons apostatizes from the confession of Jesus as the Son of God and returned to a former abrogated religious system, which is like building again or laying again a foundation that needs not be laid again. He did so to contrast the limited ritual efficacy of the Levitical animal sacrifices and the supreme efficacious value of the crucified Christ. I'll say it again. He did so, spoke so rhetorically, to contrast the limited ritual efficacy of the Levitical animal sacrifices and the supreme efficacious value of the crucified Christ and his once and for all and forever sacrifice on the cross. He did not speak rhetorically to indict his readers or threaten them. In any case, he was not describing their situation or the situation of any other actual group for that matter. So as hinted at already, another reason for taking a closer look at Hebrews 6.9 is that it contains a significant catchword in the homily that gives the homily all the more its integrity, its completeness, its coherence. Pannenberg once wrote that truth is, in essence, coherence or coherent. And Hebrews is truth, and it holds together coherently. It has integrity as a document. So a significant catchword in the homily is the comparative use of the adjective agathos, which is used again, as I said, 13 times over the span of Hebrews 1.4 through 12.24. So it's pretty widely distributed as a word in Hebrews, translated into English as better. Again, it, you see this word kraton or kray. Tona or Christosin, it's used, it's spelled a little differently six times in Hebrews for in 13 uses of the word better. Generally speaking, it looks sort of like this, K-R-E-I-T-T, that's two T's, T-T-O-N. K-R-E-I-T-T-O-N, Kraton. In Hebrews 1-4, that's how it's spelled. It's slightly differently spelled Kraysona in 6-9, as we've just looked at. It's Kratonos, but it's the same word, just used in a different syntactical way in Hebrews 7-7, 7-19, 7-22. Hebrews 8-6, twice. Hebrews 11.16 and 11.35. Then Kratosin, a slightly different spelling because of syntax, 
It's used in 923. Kratona in 1034. Kraton in Hebrews 1140 and 1224. The word better as a comparative of agathos, once again, hopefully that's a word you'll hear at the judgment seat when the Lord says agathos over what you have done in this world, in your body. Agathos, A-G-A-T-O-S. And so we've observed that word again in three places it appears in its non-comparative form simply as the essential good or good in Hebrews 9.11, 10.1, and 13.21, which is really the last verse before the dispatch note. So again, it shows the significance of the essential good of God in our exegetical treatment of Hebrews, which is a theological exegesis. Better is then first deployed as a strategic adjective in Hebrews 1.4, where the PT demonstrates that the incarnate Son attained a mediatory status that is better than that of the angels. Remember the recent message on mediation. Here in Hebrews 6.9, he speaks in a general way of the better things that accompany salvation, soteria, things which are descriptive of their real situation. In Hebrews 7.7, the PT uses a general principle to show the importance of the king-priest of Salem, named Melchizedek. That general principle is the inferior is blessed by the superior, or the better. That's a principle that he employs. Though this principle is applied to Melchizedek's superiority to Levi, who was in Abraham's loins at the time, laugh, laugh, because it is a humorous thing he's using. He uses the rhetorical device of humor in speaking about Levi being in Abraham's loins as Melchizedek, the greater priest, blesses Abraham, and in doing so blesses Levi, the lesser priest, in the loins of of and yet to be born through Abraham, which then shows the type Melchizedek of Jesus Christ, hinting at the greater priesthood of Jesus Christ, typified by Melchizedek. So we have a lot to say about that, and so does the writer, and that's the core and the heart of the priestly Christology. So it is in general a principle that applies to salvation also. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Salvation itself is a blessing and a passel of benefits conferred by a superior, being God, to inferiors, being humankind. In fact, all of creation, including the angels. As Ephesians 1.3 says, praised be the God, or blessed be the God, but it's actually praised be the God, eulogetos, Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, the superior blesses the inferior, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Salvation involves every spiritual blessing, meaning everything you can imagine and then way beyond what you can imagine. It's blessings conferred by the God who does exceedingly beyond what we could ask or imagine, He does it for humankind and for all creation through the mediation of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, some would suggest that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, or Abram as he was called, before he was called Abraham, because of Abram's victory over the desert sheikhs who had taken hostages from the city of Sodom, including Abram's nephew Lot. You'd think that Melchizedek came out to congratulate him for his victory and to reward him, therefore, for his action. But, like Paul in Ephesians 1.3, Melchizedek said this, Praised be God, Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. Genesis 14.20 The superior, the Most High God, El Elyon, blessed the inferior, Abraham, for something that God, the superior, had done for him. Moreover, Melchizedek also said, moreover, Melchizedek had said, Abram is blessed by God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. The blessing of God was mediated through Melchizedek, a type of Christ. Abraham was the recipient of that blessing and blessedness by sheer grace, sheer grace, pure grace. And that's why we're blessed with every spiritual blessing too. Don't forget it, and I promise I won't, by the grace of God. Sheer grace. Hebrews 7.19 speaks of the introduction of a better hope than the comparatively weak and unprofitable law had offered. The law offers a hope, but it's kind of weak and paltry like the law itself. It is not only a better hope that God offers in Christ qualitatively, but it's a hope of better things that could be afforded by the law, which is a bankrupt system. The law could only give the hope of a resurrection leading to a double outcome, immortality and blessing for some, everlasting shame to others. The new covenant, however, of which Jesus is the guarantor and his blood is the ratifying agent, gives absolute confidence of the resurrection of all to life and a single outcome of divine judgment, one of life and justification for all in Christ Jesus. That's a better hope, don't you think? Once you had a hope, well, I hope I'm part of that minority that goes to heaven in the heavenly city, and I hope I'm not part of that vast majority that go into eternal fire with the devil and his angels in a misunderstanding of the apocalyptic symbolism of Jesus in Matthew 24. 25 make that, 31 to 46, but then you knew that. I think it's a better hope. It's also notable that a doctrine of justification by one's individual faith or repentance and faith or repentance and faith and baptism, however you want to put it, also requires a double outcome of judgment. In other words, if your individual faith is everything and individual unbelief is everything, then there is going to be a double outcome of a future judgment. And that's just like the law of Moses because it's faith or repentance being required or faith and baptism required. And that also requires a double outcome of judgment because what if you didn't repent? What if you didn't believe? What if you weren't baptized? What if none of those three things were descriptive of you? Then you go to hell according to the system that tried to improve on Roman Catholicism with the Reformation. It didn't improve 
much at all. And so what is compatible with a single outcome of judgment, however, is the doctrine of the justification of all of humanity by God through the faithful obedience and faithful death of one Jesus Christ who was handed over for our transgressions, the transgressions of the whole world, and raised for our justification and life. Romans 4.25, Romans 5.18. Compared with Hebrews 9.26, he appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What does it mean at the end of the ages? Origen has something to say about it, and we'll look at it down the road. Hebrews 7.22 speaks of how much better is the new covenant, the covenant of which Jesus is the guarantor, as he's called, or what the Old Testament calls surety. It's E-G-G-U-O-S. Usually when we transliterate it, it becomes an N-G, so it would be enguos. And that's what Jesus is, enguos. He is the guarantor. He's the one who lays his life down. The better covenant is the new covenant, or the everlasting covenant, as it's called in Hebrews 13.20, as opposed to the old and outworn covenant connected with Sinai. In Hebrews 8.6, the word better is deployed twice, Once as a descriptive, again, of the covenant of which Jesus is not only the guarantor or the surety, but now he's also called the mediator. We've seen that word recently, mesites. In connection with this covenant, Jesus himself described his own death as, quote, my blood of the covenant, Matthew 26, 28. By this we understand that the new covenant is better than the old because it was confirmed or endorsed or ratified not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of the Son of God, the priest and victim in a sacrifice that has everlasting, diachronic, and universally saving efficacy. I'm going to say that sentence again. It should be in bold in print. I think we'll make it that. By this we understand that the new covenant is better than the old because it was confirmed not by the blood of animals but by the blood of the Son of God, the priest and victim in a sacrifice that has everlasting, diachronic and universally saving efficacy. Jesus' blood was shed for the ransom of many. And if we understand that many implies all and sometimes just plain explicitly means all of humanity, by a comparison of Matthew 26, 28 and other verses like Matthew 20, 28 with 1 Timothy 2, 6 and 4, 10 and Romans 5, 18 and 5, 19, then we are seeing the universally saving impact of the cross of Christ. We are seeing Jesus. That's the whole reason for this whole teaching in the 151st increment of it. We are seeing Jesus as the salvation of all. The Hebrews homily pays homage to this truth and accentuates it in a particularly powerful way. No wonder the patristic theologian Origen appealed significantly to Hebrews as his lower blade data 
for his theory of apocatastasis, which was not a platonic theory, but a Christian doctrine found in Acts 3.21, Matthew 19.28, Colossians 1.20, Ephesians 1.9-10, and many other places. Hebrews 8.6, again, uses the, better, the word better twice, announcing that the new covenant is also better because it is legally enacted on better promises. You see why I decided to take a closer look at 6.9? Because it contains the word better, which is one of the words that causes the whole homily to be contained as in, a, in an integrity, in a unit integrity. Again, Hebrews 8.6 uses the word better twice, announcing that the new covenant is also better because it's enacted on better promises. Reminds me of Hey Jude, better, 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 never mind. These promises are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ, to use the words of 2 Corinthians 1.20. He is the guarantee that all of humanity is destined to be partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4. The promises connected with the better, new, and everlasting covenant include the promises of Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will give you a new and everlasting covenant, is what essentially God is saying. He says, in fact, actually, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. And he also has these promises. And I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Or how about this promise? I will be merciful to their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Hebrews 8, 10 to 12, which is referring to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is the Septuagint translation of Jeremiah 38, 31 to 34. God, who is not unjust, 610, to forgive or to rather to forget the love we show to his name, I'll say that again, God who is not unjust to forget the love we show to his name, Hebrews 6.10, is just to never again remember our sins. He's just not to forget our love. He is just to forget our sins. Hebrews 8.12, Hebrews 10.17. So in 6.9, which we're taking a little closer look at today through our microscopic lens, Hebrews 6.9 better describes the better things that belong to salvation itself. Kai ekomena soteria. 
even though we're speaking in this rhetorical manner. Ikai utas la lumen. Even though we've been talking this way. You know, a lot of preachers have taken that which he speaks of as rhetorical and brought it right into the face of Christians to threaten them with the loss of their salvation. Shame on such pastors. Phonies. Now, I point the finger right back at me. Because in my very early days, I thought Hebrews was that. And as I've explained before, I went through kind of my own personal hell thinking it was about me. So here we have the translation. Now, even though we're speaking in this rhetorical, you'll notice I'm switching the word order just to make it kind of palatable to English readers or listeners. Now, even though we're speaking in this rhetorical manner, like we did in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, beloved, we're completely persuaded in your case of the better things, that is, the things that belong to salvation itself. That has to do with the essential good, which is God, extending his goodness into all things. Hebrews 9.23 speaks of the better sacrifices that were needed to purify the actual heavenly things as opposed to the animal sacrifices, which merely purified the copies of the things in the heavens, that is, things of the earthly tabernacle. The reference to the better sacrifices, plural, interestingly, better sacrifices, plural, refers to the singular, once-and-for-all sacrifice of Jesus as priest and victim, which accomplished all that the multitudes of Levitical sacrifices merely symbolized and foreshadowed. Hebrews 10.34 points to the better and more enduring possession, or property we could say, that is had by the Hebrews who accepted with joy the confiscation of their possessions during a previous time of persecution. That's Hebrews, back in Hebrews 10. 32 to 34. Hebrews 11:16 speaks of a better homeland which the faith heroes look for while on this earth as wanderers and temporary residents on the earth. Men and women who died not having received the things that were promised. There's an interplay here that we're going to see, a dialectic of people who received the promises and people who did not receive the promises, but both were faith heroes. It's amazing. It's astonishing. It's phenomenal. Hebrews 11.35 speaks of martyrs, probably during the Maccabean era, who endured brutal torture without accepting release in order to receive a better resurrection. They were stretched out on the rack in pain that's unspeakable. They were told, we're going to put you in a frying pan. We're going to burn you little by little. We're going to tear you apart if, unless you disown your loyalty to Yahweh, the God of Israel. That was what was happening under the vicious reign of Antiochus Epiphanes before the great deliverance brought by Judas Maccabees. These Maccabean martyrs did not 
accept release because they were looking for what the Bible calls a better resurrection. They knew that to die a martyr's death instead of renounce their confession of faith would result not only in resurrection, but in special reward. No one is assimilated to Jesus Christ, the victim and the priest, more than a Christian martyr. Hebrews 11.40, in closing, Hebrews 11.40 closes off the chronicles of historical faith heroes with the wonderful announcement that God has provided something even better for us, for us, for us in this age, so that all of these heroes would not be brought to completion without us. Do you realize what he's talking about here? He's talking about all the generations of these faith heroes, beginning with Abel and going all the way up to the Maccabean martyrs, and then, of course, turning to Jesus. All of us living contemporaneously. All of these generations living in the same contemporaneous place in the glorious privilege of completion in Christ Jesus. So, again, Hebrews 11.40 closes off the chronicles of historical faith heroes, with the wonderful announcement that God has provided something better for us in this age so that all of these heroes would not be brought to completion without us. In other words, God has planned a resurrection in which we all will be completed together in transconfigured bodies of immortality and incorruption so that all generations will be contemporaries in future world. Finally, Hebrews 12.24 speaks of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and of the sprinkled blood that speaks better things than that of Abel, who was the first person mentioned of the faith heroes. So from Abel to Jesus, from Abel in Hebrews 11.4 to Jesus in 12.2 and 3. The blood of Jesus... Sprinkled blood, that's atoning blood, speaks better things than that of Abel. The word better than times 13 and agathos times 3 reveals the essential good that is God, radiant throughout this homily. A radiance of goodness that we see as we see Jesus. For in his face, in his eyes, in his nail-scarred hands and feet and riven side, we see the light of the essential good that is God, the good that by its very existence extends to all things in an anakephaliosis panton, in a recapitulation of all things. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.